Hi, welcome to the latest edition of the Are We Europe readouts. Today, we'll read a story called Fans Without Football. How did football's most hardcore supporters go soft? Which is part of our latest print magazine, The Silver Lining, which is all about solidarity in times of crisis. The article is written by Kit Holden, a journalist who focuses mainly on German football. And today's reader is Mick Terewerst. If you want to read more stories like this, our latest magazine is now available in our web store. But for now, we hope you'll enjoy. It began in Lombardy. On February 19th, Bergamo-based football club Atalanta stepped out of the shadow of its grander Milanese neighbors to celebrate the greatest triumph in its 113-year history, a 4-1 victory over Valencia in the second round of the European Cup. The match later became known as Game Zero, the spark that lit the fuse on Lombardy's coronavirus crisis. As the region became the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak in Europe, fingers were immediately pointed to the 40,000-odd Atalanta fans who had crammed into Milan's San Siro Stadium, as well as countless others who celebrated in bars and living rooms back home. Atalanta's victory was a biological bomb. The trauma of that game is one reason why football fans across Europe are now unlikely to see the inside of a stadium until at least 2021. Towards the end of April, around six to eight weeks after they had ground to a halt in coronavirus lockdown, Europe's major football leagues started to lay plans to get the ball rolling again, but behind closed doors. If and when it does start up again, footballs will be played in empty stadiums. And that in itself could raise existential questions for the continent's favorite pastime. Football's hardcore fans may not have the best reputation among laypeople, but they are an essential part of the game's aesthetic, its commercial success, and its claim to a wider relevance. So what will become of football without its fans? And what do football fans do without football? The second question, at least, has been answered emphatically in the last few weeks. Since the outbreak of the pandemic, hardcore fans have mobilized in their hundreds and thousands to support their local communities. In Italy, Germany, Spain, and France, groups of so-called ultras, who would normally be found waving flares and singing themselves hoarse, have instead been building hospitals, suing homemade masks, and collecting medicines and groceries for elderly neighbors. This too began in Bergamo. Scapegoated, perhaps unfairly, for the initial outbreak in Lombardy, Atalanta fans showed they could help as well as harm in the weeks that followed. Having donated thousands of euros of ticket money to local hospitals, they then volunteered to help the military build a pop-up field hospital. It was ready in a matter of weeks. Like the off-maligned ultra-movement itself once did in the 1970s and 80s, the supporter solidarity bug soon spread out of Italy and into other countries. In France, Bordeaux's ultramarines raised cash for hospitals. In Spain, Real Valladolid fans collected supplies for their local food bank. In Germany, Union Berlin supporters made thousands of protective masks to hand out in care homes. Almost everywhere, football banners began to appear in front of hospitals and supermarkets, offering messages of support to frontline workers. We have a certain pool of people we can fall back on, so we know we can get things like this going in a short space of time, says Clemens Knüttler head of the ultra-group Schwabensturm in Stuttgart, southwestern Germany. In March, Knödler helped create a network of 250 volunteers operating in six different districts to pick up groceries and prescription medicine for those who can't leave their homes. Vulnerable citizens can message requests to a WhatsApp hotline, 
and are then put in touch with a volunteer in their area, who delivers what is needed directly to their door. According to Knutla, the system was set up over the course of a single weekend and has so far run like clockwork. The ultras, by nature, are good at organizing. The subculture is based on the idea of rigidly organized support, ranging from enormous choreographed stadium art to protest marches and even semi-illegal activity. Almost all ultra groups, for example, are well drilled in the practice of smuggling large amounts of fireworks and flares into stadiums, an operation which takes coordination and, in certain cases, a particular brand of selfless discipline. The willingness to sacrifice one's own comfort to a higher cause is inherent and translates well into community action. What we do as ultras, we do for our club, but also fundamentally for the city and a region in which we live, says Knetla. So it follows that we are ready to actively help when it's needed. Fierce regional patriotism can also be ugly, and in some places the ultras' engagement in the coronavirus crisis has betrayed flashes of a darker underbelly. In Spain, Atletico Madrid's hardcore front offered direct support to the city government in a statement on Twitter, pointing out that they had a lot of people with professional sanitary, logistical and military training. Given that the group has openly displayed far-right sympathies in the past, it is difficult not to balk a little at the word military. Yet it would be wrong to tar all ultras with the same brush. Politically, it's a wildly diverse subculture. Many clubs have both left and right-wing elements of their hardcore support, while some, like Hamburg's San Pauli and Rayo Falesano in Spain, are decidedly hard-left. Others, like Bayern Munich's Chicaria, are notable for their campaigns on issues such as homophobia, sexism, and human rights in Qatar. What all these groups tend to have in common is a deep mistrust of commercialism in football. Nowhere is that clearer than in Germany, where the fiercely defended 50 plus 1 rule still guarantees majority voting rights for fans and prevents wealthy individual investors from taking full control of a club, as is the case with Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich at Chelsea or Sheikh Mansour at Manchester City. In the weeks before coronavirus lockdown, German football was rocked by a wave of protests in German stadiums against Dietmar Hopp, the billionaire owner of Hoffenheim, a top-flight club which is one of the few exceptions to the 50 plus 1 rule. The tech mogul was decried by fans across the country as a son of a bitch, and banners were held up displaying his face behind crosshairs. For the ultras, Hopp is a symbol of what they see as attempts to hollow out German football's democratic structures and sanitize the game in the pursuit of profits. The March protests were sparked by a crackdown on Borussia Dortmund fans holding up the Kreshaar. The March protests were sparked by a crackdown on Borussia Dortmund fans holding up the crosshair banner, which ultra fans from other German clubs saw as an attempt to silence the legitimate protests. Critics countered as free speech does not necessarily include the right to deliver a lighthearted death threat from a 10,000 strong crowd. Insults flew back and forth, and the relationship between fans, authorities, and the media reached a new low. One club boss described the ultras as the ugly face of football. The virus has turned all that on its head, with ultras suddenly hailed as heroes for their social engagement. So is all this just clever marketing? Did hardcore fans simply spy an opportunity to rehabilitate their image and draw attention away from the uglier side of their subculture? On the one hand, the ultras are not really that interested in how they are perceived, says Michael Gabriel, head of the Central Coordination Office for Germany's Fan Projects collection of independent organizations who engage in social work with young fans and also help to mediate between clubs and supporters. On the other hand, they do expect to be viewed without prejudice in all their complexity and diversity, Gabriel adds. While there are undoubtedly disturbing elements of ultraculture, 
They are often exaggerated by the media and authorities, while positive aspects are overlooked, he claims. Even if not by design, the coronavirus has served to bring into focus how fans are acting responsibly. The social engagement in the coronavirus crisis may also have broken down some of the fans' own prejudices. Stuttgart Ultra Clemens Knötler points out that while his group has regularly engaged in fundraising and charity work before, this is the first time they have worked with people who are not football fans themselves. To build a network with people who are relatively alien to football was something new, he says. Some of the conflicts will rumble on nonetheless. Fans in Spain and Germany have already railed against plans to resume football in empty stadiums, accusing clubs of losing touch with reality as they seek to defend business interests. For Gabriel, playing in empty stadiums touches on a deep-rooted fear among football fans that the sport doesn't actually need them. The economic growth of the game, and especially the boom in TV rights sales, have made actual match-going fans less and less important for the clubs they support. For some, the fear is that a year in empty stadiums may see local supporters sidelined forever. Yet Gabriel thinks the opposite may be true. The coronavirus crisis has not only softened media perception of hardcore fans, it has also led to more intense dialogue between fans and officials, he says. The spectacle of empty stadiums, meanwhile, may only emphasize the importance of local passion for the global product. The affection, the expectations, and the hopes that fans project into the game are what gives football its meaning, says Gabriel. I think one effect of this period will be that it will become clear to people that football without fans is nothing. Thanks for listening. If you want to support us, consider buying the magazine or become an Are We Europe member. Uh, and see you next time.